Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to reread 13. Again, we're going to focus today on 14, 15, and 16. So it says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you so much for your Word. I pray that you would uh, please come now and, uh, and and help me to explain this, your word. I pray that it would uh, that your spirit would open our eyes to see um, Jesus through this passage. Help our help our hearts to receive it. Help our minds to to wrap around this passage. Um, I pray that you would um, please don't let this message stop with my ability, God. But I pray that you would take. Uh, what I have to offer and, and extend it and multiply it to our hearts and our minds today. And I thank you so much for what you're going to do um, today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you for standing up. Um, so last week we, we moved out of the Beatitudes and uh, we, we began this section, these last four verses, um, of what most biblical interpreters consider... Um, an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So there's the Beatitudes in verses uh, 3 through 11, and then, or 3 through 12, and then 13, 14, 15, and 16 close out this introductory section. Um, and what, what, in these verses, Jesus has given us two word pictures of what Christians are supposed to look like, how we exist in, in the world as we live here. Um, those two pictures, or the analogies, are that of salt. And that of light. Now last week we talked a lot about being salt. How Christians are supposed to be different than the world. Um, just like salt is salty. Christians are Christian-y. And the very thing that makes us Christians is what sets us apart. It's not, any, it's not anything in addition to just who we are. We can't separate who we are from what makes us who we are. It just is that way. And so, and, and so I said that in, in so many ways. Um, that being born again Christians, by definition, sets us apart from the world, plain and simple. We're supposed to be different simply because we've been chosen out of the world. And, um, and we see even in the Old Testament that God has chosen a people for his own possession to be his, to be a light to the nations. Now this week we're going to talk about that light. That light that is in us. It, it shines forth from us. We are supposed to be the light to the nations. This light draws people to uh, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I want to prove all of those statements today using verses 14 through 16 and a lot of other New Testament passages. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. There are, most of them are going to be up on the screen, I think. And so you won't have to do you know, Bible drills. I'll have you turn um, to John in a little bit. But other than that, you can just kind of uh, watch. And, and the reason for that being... As you read the New Testament, I found it very interesting. As you read the New Testament, especially the, the letters and stuff that the apostles wrote, you find many words and phrases and, and different um, teachings 
that are the, almost the exact same thing as this Sermon on the Mount and even the Beatitudes specifically, the apostles would repeat these things. Um, now, we believe and, and affirm that all of the New Testament is, uh, was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's all God's Word. And, and so we, 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 we come to these epistles, we read these things. In John 14, Jesus promised Himself, He promised to the apostles, I'm going to bring to your mind, the, the Spirit's going to come and going to bring to your mind all the things that I've taught you, all the things that I've said. And so we can imagine... That in the three years that Jesus spent with his disciples, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he was always with them. He probably said and taught a lot of things that are not recorded in the Gospels. Um, John even says, the world could not contain all the books that it would take to explain and tell about all the things Jesus said and did. He says that. So we know... We have this, but Jesus said a whole lot more. And a lot of that was more than likely unpacking all the implications of this sermon, the Beatitudes and how they play out in the everyday context of the disciples. He was teaching them what, how these things work. And then when they began to write their letters, uh, when Paul and Luke and these men were writing letters to churches, they were just taking the things that Jesus taught them and saying, do this, keep doing this, in your church, do this and do this. And so... That for that reason, I want to use a lot of the New Testament today. Well, not a lot, but a good bit of the New Testament outside of these verses to prove what these verses are saying. And, and in, when we do that, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. I don't have to come up and say, well, I think it means this. I can say, well, here's what the rest of the Bible says. And so we let it interpret Scripture. Um, and we've, we've said before that we can take a single verse out or even half of a verse and make it say something we want it to say, or some people will take half of a verse out and say, well, that sounds kind of questionable. I don't know about that. But if you read it in context and you let the whole of Scripture prove itself, it, it all comes together. And so that's, that's kind of the reason I like to do this type of stuff. We can learn what the author's intent was in saying, you know, you are the light of the world. Well, does that mean I'm supposed to glow? What does that mean? Well, we can use the Bible to understand what that means. Um, Tim Keller says, let the clear passages interpret the murky passages. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, so my thesis statement, where I want to get to today is this. And um, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Um, it's fairly simple, and I hope you would all agree. But if you don't agree with me, we're going to work through this, and I'll prove it by the end, hopefully. So there's, here's my thesis statement. Christians share the gospel. Christians share the gospel. That's what I'm going to teach from these verses. Now, there are this, this passage we could preach on for months in itself, but that's kind of where I want to go today. We've kind of been on a theme for a while, coming from Easter and even before Easter, we've been on a theme of the, uh, this idea that Christians are supposed to be making disciples, telling people about Jesus. And so I kind of want to keep that theme going. Um, I believe that I'll be able to show you from this passage and the other ones that kind of prove it, that, that Christians share the gospel. Christians tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Um, Christians should be eager to explain to others what Christ has done for them. Christians are in love with Jesus, and just like anything else, 
And I can, if you want specific examples in your own life, I can meet with you this week and show you, just like anything else, if you love something, you're going to tell people about it. You're going to, whether it's a new pair of shoes, whether it's a new truck, whether it's a new CD, you're going to be saying to somebody, hey man, check this out. Look at my truck. Look at my shoes. You're going to tell somebody because you like things. And so Christians, because we're in love with Jesus, we are excited to tell people about him. It, it spews from our mouths and our lives. I love Jesus. He's my savior. I have no no boast except for him. And so this is what we do because we love Jesus. Um, we exist in this world as agents of reconciliation. We talked about that a few weeks ago that we exist here to reconcile sinners to God through Jesus. That's our purpose. A lot of people are under the, under the impression that to become a Christian is simply to get to heaven. And that's their mindset. I want to become a Christian so that I can get to heaven. Well, if, if that were the only goal of being a Christian, then the moment God saved you, He would just bring you to heaven. There would be no use in us being here, but we are here. We're still here for a reason. What is it? It's to shape us into being like Christ and to share the gospel with other people. So our, our eternity with Jesus is settled, but we've been given the great commission to accomplish. That's why we're still here. That's our only purpose for being here is to disciple the nations. And so we got to, I want us to understand that and grasp that as we read scripture from, from cover to cover. Um, Jesus' sermon here is not just an evangelistic sermon. As a matter of fact, when you read this, for the most part, you're not even thinking about evangelism. This is not the evangelistic section. He's not giving an invitation. He's not giving an altar call. We, it, it's just a sermon. And we, we got to understand that the purpose, that God's purpose from the beginning of time has been to redeem a people for himself. That's the goal of every bit of it is to draw his people to him. And he's chosen to do that by giving us Christians his Holy Spirit, sending us out, empowering us to share the gospel. And so that's why we're still here. And so we go out and we call people to repentance, to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so the whole Bible is about evangelism, whether it's whether you're in the act of evangelism or whether you're going or whether he's preparing you for it. That's what the Bible is about. And so I, I kind of want to, I hope you guys understand that. Um, so I'm going to give you first uh, five points. I'm going to give you my five points and then I'll unpack those. I'll give them to you. You can write them down if you want to now, or you can wait until I come back through them. Um, so here's my five points. The first one is um, that which is in us is Christ. That's point number one. That which is in us is Christ. Number two, Christ in us must shine forth from us. So that which is in us is Christ. Christ in us must shine forth from us. Number three, Christ in us must shine forth from us through our good works. That's number three. Christ in us must shine forth from us through our good works. Number four... When Christ in us shines forth from us through our good works, we are appropriated the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in us to clarify which is Christ. And then number five, through making a defense of our inner hope, which is Christ, occasioned by the shining forth of our good works done in him, worshipers will be made. Or if you want to shorten that last one, when we share the gospel, people get saved, plain and simple. 
Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove that from this passage. So you guys can write those down as I go through them. So number one, that which is in us is Christ. That which is in us is Christ. Now I said last week, I've already repeated it one time today, that as Christians we are to be different. A Christian person is a person saved by God's grace. A Christian has been brought to repentance and faith in Jesus. That's a Christian. So we get that in our heads. If, we're, if we agree with that, if that describes us, if that defines who we are, you're a Christian. Now, if you've spent much time in John's gospel, which is where we're going to go next, you might be caught off guard by what Jesus says here. Because when we read this, Jesus says, you are the light of of the world. Now remember, he's speaking to his disciples and all subsequent disciples that would follow these men. So that's us. He's speaking to us. You yourselves, Christians, you are the light of the world. Now, this is kind of confusing to us, and I'll show you why. Flip over to John. It can be confusing. Maybe you're not confused at all, but it can be confusing. In John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says this. I'm going to read 1 through 10 and then 14 and they'll be up here on the screen. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without, any, without Him was not anything made that was made. Who are we talking about there? We're talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's Jesus Okay, in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. So that all of a sudden, light's introduced. In him was life, and the, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we're still talking about light. The true light, which light enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So we're still, we've got the word of God, which is Jesus. We understand that. Then there's this idea that Jesus has, is in him is the life, and the life is the light of men. We're talking about this light. And then all of a sudden, in verse 10, he, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So you've got the Word, which is Jesus, and then Jesus comes with a light, sort of, kind of, connected. Somehow there's a light, and then all of a sudden, in verse 10, this light is a He. And, then, and it says, the world was made through Him. Now what did we learn in verse 3? All things were made through Him, the Word. In verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you've got the Word is coming into the world. It comes to dwell with us. That's Jesus. We can agree with that. And then there's this light thing tied to it. And then all of a sudden the light is a He. And the light's coming into the world to enlighten everyone. And He's a He. And all, through Him all things were created. So Jesus is the Word. So who is the light? Jesus. Jesus is the light. So from eternity past... And still, we say Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is also the light. That's another way to phrase that. Now, flip over to John chapter 8. This might be a little simpler, a little, little more simple for us to grasp. John 8, verse 12 says this. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's a little more simple. We, that proves everything we just learned from John 1. Jesus just flat out says, I'm the light of the world. That's me. Light of the world, me. John 1, there's a light coming. It sounds like it might be Jesus. Then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So that's John 8, 12. Flip, uh, you might not even have to flip to chapter 9, verse 5. John 9, 5 says, As long as I am in the world, this is Jesus talking, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So once again, Jesus has claimed twice now, I'm the light of the world. And what that phrasing there, as long as I'm in the world, he's saying, he's, they, he's giving an answer as to why he just healed a blind man, and, or why this blind man is blind, and then he's going to heal him. And he's saying, I'm the light of the world, I'll always be the light of the world, but while I'm here, I've got to do things that the light of the world does. I'm emphasizing the fact that I am the light of the world. Okay, now flip backwards to John 3. I put these in a specific order, I think for a reason, although I can't remember what it is right now. So John 3, verse 19, says this. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Who do we say the light was? Jesus. He's even said it a couple times already um, to us. He hasn't said it yet in this gospel. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Side note, rejecting Jesus doesn't make you evil. You reject Jesus because you're evil. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. By God. So once again, if we take what we've learned so far about Jesus being the light and we apply it here, we're seeing the difference between the light that is Jesus, the light and good and bad and evil and wickedness in the world, the darkness. And so we see that Jesus is different from the world. The difference between that which is of Christ and that which is of the world. Light is in opposition to darkness and vice versa. They, they're against one another just because of what they are. Light and darkness don't exist together ever. Okay, now flip over to John 12. John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 35 and 36 first. John 12, 35 says, So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus is saying, he's, he's not going to be with them much longer. While I'm here, follow me. Walk with me. He's talking about himself. I'm only going to be here for a little while longer. And then he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So what he's saying is, if you believe in the light, believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, you will become sons or offspring or fruit of light. And in so many words, what we see here is Jesus is saying, a disciple of the light or 
offspring of the light, son of the light, is one who believes in Jesus, follows Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus. There's no, you know, what do I have to do to become a disciple? If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You become, you, you get in that inerrant line, that, in that, line, that line of becoming sons of light, if you believe in Jesus. And then look at verse 46 of the same chapter. I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Once again, Jesus is the light. Believing in the light makes you a disciple, but not only makes you a disciple, but belief in Jesus separates you from the world. Plain and simple. Boom, you're different. Just because you believe in Jesus. So that all that to reiterate, being joined with Christ... Or being a Christian, by definition, sets you apart. You're different. Light and darkness cannot come together. You go into a dark room that is pitch black, and you light a light, it's not going to be dark anymore. It cannot happen. They cannot join together. They are opposed. So in all of that, we see Jesus is the light of the world. He claimed it for himself. His disciples taught it. That man is the light of the world. So the question is... How can we be the light of the world if Jesus is the light of the world? Because he said, you are the light of the world. But he also said, I am the light of the world. So is, is it him or is it us? That's the question. Who, who is the light? And this is the answer. When we become Christians, Christ comes to dwell in us. He dwells in us. Jesus, by His Spirit, takes up residence in our hearts. And we become, like He said, sons of light. As believers, we are sons of light. And then the Holy Spirit remains in our hearts to guide us, to comfort us, to give us wisdom, to empower us to be bold in our faith, to teach us from Scripture, to convict us of sin, to make sure that we persevere in the faith. And in many more things that the Holy Spirit does, He comes inside of us. Now, I don't claim to be able to explain how this happens. Can't tell you. It's just, this is a mystery of salvation that His Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. I can't explain it. I just trust what the Bible says, and I'll read you a few verses to prove that. Colossians 1.27 To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles... Are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there he even says, this mystery, Christ in you. I can't explain it. I don't know how it happens. But his spirit comes in and takes residence. Christ in you. The next one, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That's a, that great proof passage that says Christianity is not an inoculation. You don't get a vaccine. I said my prayer, signed my card, I'm good to go. I've, I've done the thing, I'm, I'm going to heaven. No, sir. Paul says you better test yourself, examine yourself, because you might find out that you're not a believer. Because if you are a believer, Jesus Christ is in you. And then Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when we receive Christ by faith, when we take hold of Jesus by faith, 
He dwells in us and His Spirit comes to live inside of us. It's not a physical thing. It doesn't climb into our skin and we look like Jesus and we take a different form. It's just a spiritual thing. His Spirit comes in, empowers us and leads us and guides us in all manner of life and godliness. He shows us through Scripture how to live, how to act, how to do things according to godly wisdom. It's not osmosis that we act in a Christian manner. We go to the Word and the Holy Spirit reveals to us what His Word says and we then put it into action. He does it through us. And like we said last week, His acting is our acting. He acts through us. Our acting is His acting. It just It's just this spiritual mystery that we just we say, it's what it says, it happens. I don't know how it happens, it just is. So when Jesus says that we are the light of the world, He doesn't contradict Himself. Because he said he's the light and he says us, we're the light. He's not contradicting his own claims. Both statements are parallel truths in scripture. He is the true light and when we take hold of him by faith, we receive him. And his, he comes in us, into our hearts, dwells inside of us. And then like Paul says, it's not us who's living anymore. It's Jesus living in and through us, which... As He is in us, He causes us to be different. He causes us to be salt. He causes us to be light. And the light is Jesus Christ. He's shining through us. So that which is in us is Christ. That's number one. That which is in us is Christ. We must understand that. Now, number two. Christ in us must, that's the key word, must shine forth from us. If He's in us, He must shine forth from us. Look at uh, the beginning of verse 14. Or the, I guess it would be the last half of verse 14. I'll read the whole thing. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So here he gives us kind of a different analogy. Jesus doesn't say a city uh, set on a hill should not be hidden. He says it cannot. Impossible. City on a hill, it's impossible for it to be hidden. A city on a hill, we can, this is, there's no, there's nothing fancy or spiritual about this. It's just plain as day. You build a city on a hill, you're going to see it. It's, it's that simple. You can't hide it. There, it's above everything that would hide it, especially where he's from, where there's not, you know, these huge, massive, tall trees everywhere. So a city on a hill can't be hidden. It's not possible. You cannot hide it. The location of the city he's talking about is established in such a manner that makes it impossible for it to be hidden. You, If you were going to build a city and you wanted to keep it hidden from attacking armies or nations, you wouldn't build on a mountain. You'd build in a valley. You'd want the mountains to hide you. So if, we must assume that if there's a city built on a hill, the objective is for that city to be seen. We want to let people see this city. So... If you build a city on a hill and you say, yeah, I built that city over there because I was trying to kind of stay on the down low, I'd say you're a liar or you're a lunatic. It doesn't work that way. city on a hill cannot be hidden. Impossible. That's the first analogy. Then look at verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So in this verse, Jesus comes back to the light issue. Similar to the city on a hill, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You just don't do this. You guys remember? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan 
it out. I mean, that, that's how it goes. You just don't do this, especially in a day when oil was costly. Okay, you didn't have electric lighting. If you're going to light a lamp, you're not going to light it and then cover it up. Yeah, I got some light on there, Ted, and I don't want to say no. You don't do that. You light it. You put it on a lampstand. Which exists for the sole purpose of exalting the light so that its illumination can reach its maximum effect to all the corners of the room. That's why it exists. So you just, you don't do this. And in both of these analogies, Jesus is showing us the necessity of visibility. You, it's got to be seen. You build a city on a hill, it's going to be seen. You light a lamp, it's got to be, it just doesn't make sense. So these word pictures display for us the absurdities of the idea of closet Christianity. Like I can be a Christian, but I just keep it on down low. Listen, there is no such thing. Does not exist. In Scripture, there are no closet Christians. You will come out at some point. It's just got to happen. There's no such thing. Just like a city set on a hill is built to be seen. Just like you light a lamp and you... Put it up where the light shines forth into the house. We are supposed to be visible as Christians. Visible followers of Christ. That's just how it works. He does not leave room for having Christ inside and it not shining forth. It's not here. No way, no way for it to happen. You say, I think it might can happen. It can't. I'm sorry. It does not work. So that's number two. Christ in us must shine forth from us. It must now, I don't know all of the implications and how that works wherever you go and the things that you're doing. But I'm saying it's got to shine. It's, it's, it has to. Number three. Christ in us must shine forth from us through our good works. Christ in us must shine forth from us through our good works. So we've, we've established that Christ is in us. That Christ in us must shine forth from us based on the two analogies of the city and the lamp. Right? We agree. It's got to, got to do it. That's what he's saying. Okay? But we also said that the indwelling of his spirit is not a physical thing. It's, it's, not to be, it's not to be seen. So the question is, what is visible? I mean, how the light of the world must shine forth from us, but it's, it's, not, it's not physical, it's spiritual. So what does this visibly look like? How, how can an invisible spirit that is God come inside of me spiritually and then work itself out in a way that people see it with their physical eyeballs? They look and they see it. A city set on a hill can be seen physically. A lamp on a lampstand can be seen physically. But then we've got this spiritual, mysterious thing happening. How is that supposed to be seen with physical eyeballs? And that leads us to verse 16. Jesus says, in the same way. Same as what? Same as the city, same as the lamp. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the climax of this whole section. The Beatitudes, all of this comes to a point right here. Let it show through the way you live so that when people see it, they glorify God. It, it works all up to this point. Just like a lamp on a lampstand, just like a city on a hill, our works show that we are filled with Christ. So what he's saying is, when we shine, that light that is within us, it shines through our works. It will be through doing good things. Now we battle and 
battle, battle, and battle. This idea of morality, like I just be a good person and God will love me. That's not what he's saying here. But he, the Bible does teach that if you're a Christian, you act a certain way. You do good things. We could be even more specific and say <coughs> that it would be through righteously living out the expectations of the Torah or the Old Testament uh, law, even more specifically, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words. How do I know that? Well, because in the next section he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Jesus is saying, I've not come to get rid of the law. I'm saying, I'm going to show you how the law really works. I'm going to show you how to live in such a way that your light shines. So these people that say, oh, that's the law. We're not, we're not under the law. No, you're not under the law, but you still got to do it. We can't murder and commit adultery and covet and do whatever we want to just because. No, he's saying, I'm, I've come to show you how it really works. I've taken it from up here and jammed it into your heart so that you know what it means. And so this is what he's saying. And you can see that in statements like uh, in verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 32, again, you've heard it was said to those of old. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said. He's saying, you guys have heard the law. You've heard the law. You've heard the law. You've heard the law. Let me explain it to you. And who better to explain the law that God gave to Moses than God himself in a human, in, as a human being. And so he's saying it comes through obedience, doing good things. You want to know how people can see that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? Simple. Live like you're supposed to. Live a certain way. Live a godly life. You do what God says to do. And you don't do what God says not to do. It's, it seems so simple. And yet our, our nature pulls us the other way. And so when you read through God's word, especially in the New Testament, you can see the apostles are just taking this stuff and they're just giving it to the churches. Remember this, remember this, act this way, love this way, treat each other this way. Don't covet, don't sleep with your, your dad's wife, don't do these things. Live in a way that the, that the law teaches you to live. Now, you, we have to be careful, like I said, because we're battling this idea of, in our nature, we want to be good and that equals salvation. I just be a good person. If I can just be a good person. If I can just do this, then God will love me. Wrong. Or the other end, well, there's grace and I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want to. Well, no, it's not that either. It's Jesus comes in as the light and shines forth through our good works. And in chapter 6, he says several times that we, are, um, that we have to be careful. He warns of doing things for show. And they're showing that subtle, that little thin line between doing things so that people see me do it or doing things because I love the Lord and He's shining forth from me. And so we obtain the indwelling of Christ through faith. His Spirit comes to live inside of us. And that same Christ will, will, will work in us to shine forth that light through works of obedience. In Galatians 5, 6, I think this will be up there. Paul says, For in Christ... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now that circumcision and uncircumcision, those are just examples of the ceremonial law that the Jews had to follow. And he's saying they don't count for anything, but only faith working through love. That is love for God. That is love for other people. What did Jesus, when he summed up the entire law, what did he say? Love the Lord your God and love, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law comes into that love. Love for God and love for other people. And then that 
that works our faith, working through those things and motivated by those two things. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. So loving the Lord means doing what he says, obey him, live a life that is in obedience to his word. That's how our, our light shines as a lamp. That's how our light shines like a city on a hill. Obedience to Christ sets us apart and that's essential to true biblical create, uh, Christianity. It's not, I'm doing these things so that I can become a Christian. It just happens. It must shine forth and it shines forth through our good works. So that's number three. Number four. When Christ in us shines forth from us through our good works, we are appropriated the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in us, which is Christ. When Christ in us shines forth from us through our good works, we are appropriated the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in us, which is Christ. I used a thesaurus, that's why there are so many big words in that sentence. We are appropriated the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in us, which is Christ. Okay, here's another scripture. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we read verse 14 a couple weeks ago when we were talking about uh, being persecuted for righteousness sake. And then in verse 15, Peter says, Honor the Lord and be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Make a defense. That word for make a defense is apologia. We get our word apologetics, which is not like I'm sorry. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. Defending what you believe by telling why you believe it. So what he's saying is be ready to tell people why you believe what you believe. Why you are the way you are. So the question is, why would anyone ask me why I am the way I am or why I believe what I believe unless they see something in me that requires an explanation? They're not just going to come up to somebody who just looks like a regular person just like them and say, man, why are you the way you are? Most people are not going to do that. Now, some deep philosophical people might do that, but for the most part... The question is, why would anyone ask about the hope that is in you unless they see something that requires an explanation? Most of you have probably heard the old saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. And this is the idea that we can live a life and somebody's going to look at my life and say, man, Jesus died for my sins. And they're just going to fall on their knees and become Christians because of the life I live. That's absurd. If we follow that out to its conclusions, that's not true. Um, and most people attribute that statement to St. Francis of Assisi. It's actually, he never said it, never recorded that he said it. But the idea is that I could just live a godly life, and living a godly life in front of people is more virtuous than actually telling them the gospel. Another man, Dwayne Lifton, said, It is simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal. And preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can somebody 
receive Jesus and call out to Him if they've never believed in Him? And how are they to believe in Him if they, of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It doesn't work. If someone's going to get saved, they have to hear the gospel. So I hope we understand and believe that simply living a good life isn't enough. Living, the living out of an obedient life in Christ, which is empowered by His Holy Spirit in us... We're shining that light of the world. That's just a tool to be used to bring about interrogation from people. They should look at that and and want to know. They should look at your life and see a life that's so countercultural that it brings out their questions. Hey, man, I I just got to know. What's the deal? They should see deeds done with such mysterious devotion that they're just in wonder and awe. I don't know why you would do this. I have to know. Explain this to me. They should see... An invisible faith and and the indwelling of an invisible spirit working out in physical love in such a manner that they can't even begin to imagine why you are the way you are. And so they have to ask, I can't figure it out. There's something about you. I just can't pinpoint it. I need to know. What is it? That's what has to happen. So all of this happens because the light of the world in you must shine forth through obedience. And these questions are the opportunities that Christians should beg for. I mean, none of us, none of us, I'm sure, are crazy about just walking up to a a, a stranger and just cold starting a conversation with them about something. But if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, man, I just noticed that you live different. Can you explain to me why we should for those questions. That's what we want to happen. I want, yes, I get the opportunity. This is what we prepare for. This is what we're studying for. We're ready to tell people. We're ready to make that defense. I can tell them of the hope that is in me, which is Jesus. And please, if somebody says, why are you different? Don't say, well, you know, I just, you know my parents raised me. My parents raised me right, man. Don't say that. This is what we die for. So these questions, they open up opportunities to tell people, depending on your personal testimony, man, honestly, I haven't always been this way. There, maybe there were many years where you lived a life that was devoted to yourself. You lived out, I lived out every fantasy and every desire that I had and I chased it and I chased it. And then I came to a point where I was talking to somebody and they shared with me the hope that was in them, which was Christ. And in that moment, I realized that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. And so God saved me. That's then that's the reason I am the way I am. That's the hope that is in me. He just gives me, he empowers me. I love him so much. I want to do everything for him. And so that's why I am the way I am. And you can have that too. I have a hope outside of this world. You can have that too if you want it. See, these are the opportunities that we're dying for. Just those, it's, just, it's like a fill in the blank for sharing the gospel. We want these situations. So when we live that life that people say, I have to have an answer. I cannot, I cannot understand why you are the way you are. You've got to, you've got to give me the secret. You've got to tell me. That's what happens. We, they appropriate those opportunities to give an answer. And then number five, this is the last one. Through making a defense of our inner hope, which is Christ, occasioned by the shining forth of our good works done in Him, worshipers will be made. Through making a defense of our inner hope, which is Christ, Occasioned by the shining forth of our good works done in Him, worshipers will be made. Or, when we share the gospel, people get saved. 
When we share the gospel, people get saved. Look at verse 16 again. In the same way, just like the city, just like the lamp, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. Is that the end of it? No. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the goal that we're working towards as we live out lives of salt and light is that people will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. People will glorify God when they see your good deeds and when you're able to give an explanation of your lifestyle. So when we're, we're given these opportunities to share the gospel, which is the good news of the hope that is in you, some people will turn away, some people will persecute you, some people will be converted and become Christians. Some people will repent of their sin in an instant and receive and worship God. I want that that you have, and so whatever i got to do, I'll do it. And in that almost incalculable instant, they will see. As they hear the gospel, they'll, they'll see. Man, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. Like, they will realize that they are beggars at the table of Almighty God, and they have nothing to offer Him. I realize now... What I've been missing, that is a heartbreaking realization for someone who is lost. I, I have offended God and I can't do anything about it. That, that will break them. It causes men to mourn their condition. They're saddened at the thought that their entire lives up until this point have been nothing but second after second, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, Week after week, month after month, and year after year of rebellion against an infinitely holy God. Every second. They realize that, and it's sad. And they also understand that His holy wrath stands to be poured on me for eternity, and, and it's rightfully so. I deserve it. I should get that. That's what I deserve. And that's a heartbreaking reality, but that reality changes a person. Their attitude shifts, and so they no longer seek to advance themselves. I'm not trying to pick up my kingdom and build my kingdom. I would rather just let me sweep floors and scrub toilets in God's kingdom. If He'll let me do that, I'll do it, whatever it takes. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the kingdom of God than have my own kingdom. They see that. Their attitude changes. It shifts between them and God, between them and other people. They long to be right with God. They, they long to be rid of their sin that separates them from God, and so they have this hunger... Deeper than hunger pains to be, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be this anymore. I want to be like that. They thirst with an unquenchable thirst to be blameless before God. And they understand that this can only happen through trusting in Jesus, through faith in a crucified and risen Savior. That's the only way it happens. They, they see that when we share the gospel. When we teach people the gospel, God does this. And I'll prove that to you. Romans 1. 15 and 16, Paul says this, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So notice he says, preach the gospel in verse 15, and then 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's talking about the preached gospel. That's heralded, proclaimed gospel. That preached gospel, the heralded gospel, the proclaimed gospel is the only way God has chosen to save people. That is the way God has ordained. This is how I'm going to save people when the gospel is proclaimed. 
That's how people get saved. It's the power of God for salvation. There is no other way that anyone on earth will ever be saved except for hearing the preaching of the gospel. Now, I understand most of you will never stand in front of a group of people and preach the gospel. But you do have opportunities to proclaim it in in a small group or in a one-on-one conversation with friends or family. You have those opportunities. And when we do this, God has promised that this is the power of God for salvation. When we proclaim this gospel as a defense for the hope that is in us, People turn from their sin and worship God. They're saved. He converts them. He changes them. They repent and they're saved. And worshipers are made. And that's the goal of everything that we're doing. And this, we've got to get this. I've said before, worship is the only thing that we do as Christians that is an end in itself. Everything else is getting to that. And so worshipers are made. We don't do this for our own glory. We don't do this to earn our salvation. We don't do this to make God happy. We do this because we have a God Who's worthy to be praised. We have a God who's deserving of the praise of every person in every tribe and every nation, every tongue on earth. He deserves their worship. He deserves it. He he is owed it. And the atrocity is there are people who are not worshiping God. That's not fair because it's his. He should get it. And that that, that should burden you. I want people to worship God. I don't want to have... My goal is not just to have a big church or to have a a big fan base. My goal is that God is getting the worship that He deserves. And so that's what we're working towards. He deserves it. It's do Him. John Piper said missions exist because worship doesn't. Steve Timmons says missions exist because worship does. I'd love to see that, that conversation between them. But the idea is we worship through evangelism because we want to see other people worship also. The evangelism is a form of our worship. We're just praising God and people see it. And the worshipers are made so it's kind of this circle. And they go and they worship and they share the gospel. So the reason that we share the gospel around the world, the reason that we disciple the nations like I said, is because there are still people who are not worshiping God, and that is not right. He deserves every praise. He deserves every sound wave that ever comes out of a human being, that ever comes out of an animal, of uh, anything in outer space. He deserves it to be for Him and to be about Him. And that's why when, it, when it's all said and done, it says, Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's going that way. It will be that way. He will have it. The idea is we want to just go ahead and get it started now. I don't want people to have to do it before they go into the lake of fire. I want them to do it now because He deserves it. And I know that their joy is found in worshiping Him. So we want to use our lives to maximize the worship and the praise and the adoration that our Lord Receives and deserves. We want him to get the most. So if we love Jesus, we will obey his commands. And if we obey his commands, people will see the light of the world shining in and through us. And they are going to want to know why we're different. That's how it works. Because of our love for Christ, we will spew forth praises about him everywhere we go. We will, our hearts will overflow with joy and love for Him in everything that we do. And worshipers will be made. This is why we live the way we live. This is, the why, this is why Jesus cares about the way we live. This is why it matters. Because He understands God needs some glory. And we're going to give it to Him. He deserves it. It's, the reason we do this is because it is discipleship. Discipleship is simply followers of Christ spewing forth 
the praises of Christ in His gospel so that other people, other sinners will be converted and worship Him and the gospel will in turn spread and repeat the process. It just keeps going. That's what discipleship is. We're going to sit down. I'm going to talk to people and explain to them how beautiful Jesus is. They're going to get it. They're going to do it to somebody else. They're going to do it to somebody else. We're just, we're spreading his glory everywhere we go. We're getting and and gaining worshipers. And this discipleship is essential to biblical Christianity. That's what the Bible says a Christian is. Or in other words, Christians share the gospel. That's just what we do. It's who we are. Plain and simple. This is what sets us apart. Is that we're salt and we're light for the purpose of making disciples. We share the gospel. Now if you're not a Christian, this is impossible. You're not going to do this. If, if If you stay in your sin, there will come a time when you praise Jesus. And he will kick the backs of your knees and you will bow down and you will worship him. And then you're going to go to hell forever. And I don't don't want to see that. I want to see you do it now. I want to see knees bent now. I want to see backs bent over now. Worshiping God because He deserves it now. Not in a a, a moment when you're forced to do it and then sentenced to eternal separation from God. That's not what I want to happen. So if you're not a Christian, if you trust Jesus, you will be saved. It's easy as that. Have faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Take hold of Jesus. And He comes to live inside of you. If you are a Christian and you're not living a life that is displaying this, this passion for Jesus. And, 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 and I know it's, it's hard and it works different in different facets of life. And it's going to look different in, in different groups and different outlets and different friend groups and conversations. It's always going to be different. But you need to be doing this. This is a, a thing where if we're not doing this... You have an opportunity to repent, confess this sin, which means say the same thing about it as God says. And that means it's a sin. I don't want to be like that. And, and do the opposite and ask God to empower you to do these things. So if anybody needs to talk more about that, if anybody wants to know more about what it means to be a Christian, I'm, I'm available after the service um, or, or any time. So let's, let's pray.